Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Nolan. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. For many urban Westerners, nature represents a break. A place to go on weekends or vacation, where camping and hiking or simply gazing at trees constitutes a welcome respite from the real world of their homes and jobs. Enter Sukkot, an ancient Jewish harvest festival that is a movable feast in more ways than one, both because, like all Jewish holidays, it shifts its position each year on the Gregorian calendar, but also because it is a week where Jews move outdoors into the Sukkah, having meals and socializing in a small temporary hut. But the question of our relationship to nature which Sukkot brings to the forefront, is perhaps the single most urgent planetary problem of our age, as the world begins to feel the full brunt of the climate change crisis, as well as food insecurity in various parts of the globe. What can Sukkot teach us from a Jewish point of view about how to live in convergence with nature so that we can continue to live on the earth? What sorts of spiritual practices arise in the context of the natural world? And how can we get more in tune with the earth, which has been handed to us as a legacy on which we will bequeath to our children I'm Elliot Malamud, and this is the third and final in a series of special Living Jewishly podcasts about the Jewish holidays. I'm joined today by Rabbi Rachel Rosenbluth and Ms. Julia Plevin. Both women spend much of their lives not only contemplating these questions, but actively engaging nature as a focal point of their personal and professional lives. So on Sukkot, we're commanded, in a sense, to go outside into a sukkah, which is a hut-like dwelling, and we're supposed to carry out our life there, eat there, talk, study, read. Some people sleep in the sukkah. So the holiday models a kind of transition to a different space. And even though in Jewish thought, the sukkah is supposed to be temporary and somewhat fragile next to the supposed solidity of your house or your apartment, I'm wondering if you think in modernity that the sukkah, in a way, is not just a temporary space anymore, but it's a kind of permanent metaphor for the desire of people to seek out a different kind of life. It's nature in tune with the outside world. Let's start with you, Booth. What do you think? I think absolutely. You know, we've disconnected ourselves from nature in our sort of capitalist and extractive culture. And we've even gone so far as creating these like false mythologies around national parks and unpeopled wildernesses, you know, that have removed indigenous peoples from from nature and has made nature something that is like unpeopled and pristine, which isn't a reality and it's not real. We are nature. We are a part of nature. And I think that Sukkot in some ways is an invitation into a more in-tune way of living. You know, we're lifting like palm fronds, we're, we're whacking willows, we're praying for rain, that we're dependent on whether or not we feel it in this moment. And so I think the Sukkot is, I think many of our rituals are agriculturally rooted and Sukkot in particular 
is a ritual that connects us to the lands that we're on, to the resources that we have, and where we're no longer. It's an invitation to no longer be exiled from the land, separate from the land, disconnected from the land or from our bodies, but we're actually supported by the cycles, nourishment from food and nature around us. So I'd, I'd go so far to say that not only does Sukkot and does the Sukkah invite us into a different kind of life that is more in tune, but I would say that you know, we call the sukkah the fragile reality and our homes as the permanent sort of solid reality. And I would actually sort of call for us to flip that and say, when we go into the sukkah, yes, climate, we are vulnerable in some ways. We are vulnerable to the elements. But in some ways, when we are living in tune with nature, we can have a solidity that is more nourished, more in tune, stronger, less fragile than one of sort of creating an illusion that we are separate from, that we are completely dominant over and not dependent on the natural world. Yeah, totally. I agree with everything that Luke was saying, but I see it too as leaving their house and entering Sukkah is entering a liminal space. And it's in these liminal spaces where we find more meaning and more presence, the space in between spaces where time seems to extend. And I see the Sukkah as providing that for people too. And as Luz was talking about the rain, I live in a region on the west coast of the U.S. where the agriculture cycles are pretty from like similar to the Middle East. And this time of year, we really are praying for rain. And right now we need it for to take out the wildfires. And we're in a 12,000-year-old drought, so a 12,000-year drought. So it's not even like a myth, but it's actually you know, praying with all our hearts that this, like, we really are dependent on this. It's not theoretical, but it's actually our living reality. That's quite interesting when you talk. There's two things I want to pick up on here, Julia. The first is the edge of liminal space. And liminal space are transitional spaces. There's spaces in between A and C. There's this B space, which is transitional. And so are you talking about the sukkah as that transitional space, the space in between the solid apartment and the wilds of nature? Yes, exactly. We have gotten used to the idea, and I think it was brought on especially in the last few hundred years, because the mastery of technology and the one of the things that technology did right away is to conquer nature, right? In other words, so we had ancient people are very vulnerable to the elements, and there's a sort of accepted, we don't even think about it, we're not even self-conscious about it, especially in the West, that we can control these things. Now, obviously, there are all sorts of terrible things that happen. There are tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, and so on. But the general demeanor of most Westerners is that we're on top of it. Like, we can protect ourselves from the elements. And so one of the things that you were just talking about, Julia, is that, no, there's actually, at the root of it, there's a real fragility in human existence. And certainly with climate change, you're seeing that fragility come out more and more and more and more. So I'm wondering if you think about the idea then that the sukkah really, which is supposed to be this liminal space, is actually mirroring our reality now, which is that our reality now, especially with the pandemic, less climate change, is that we're getting increasingly conscious of the fact that we live in a very fragile world. Yeah, I would agree with that totally. I think even what you said, like this idea that technology that we could conquer nature was only ever an idea. We never could, right? Like, we are still in a human body that goes back to the earth. What nature is showing us now is that we cannot conquer. And so there is this, this sukkah as a 
it's letting us get back in touch with that, how dependent we are, how fragile these systems are. I actually also just got back from Baja, California and Mexico. And, you know, they live in, they have so many of these palapa structures that are wood with palm fronds. And it keeps out the rain mostly. It keeps, you know, keeps you in the shade. But it's basically a sukkah. Even this idea that these like how like that's not even a full idea that these houses are separate from nature. I think many places in the world, people live in houses that are made of natural materials that are of nature. I even would wonder, like, at what point in our history did our houses become not nature? That's a really interesting point. In a way, it's talking about the sukkah or the sukkah is quite bourgeois, actually, because what you're pointing out is the sukkah is your house. In many mm-hmm. parts of the world, it's not just some game you play a, a week a year where you jump out into this place, but it's where you live. To get a little sentimental about it, I think the sukkah is inviting us home. It's inviting us home to to Pachamama, to Mother Nature, who is our home, who holds us, who feeds us, who sustains us, who, yeah, who we are actually completely dependent on. And this illusion of our solid homes and our solid financial structures and our solid, you know, fossil fuel dependency and all this stuff that we are watching crumble in some ways. And, you know, as the IPCC report reminded us, we've got a window of time ahead of us where things are going to get worse for a lot of people in the world who have already been feeling this. We're talking floods, droughts, starvation, so much stuff. And we have a really small window in which we can make that sort of worse, slightly less worse for people. And is our denial going to continue? So what both of you are in a way are talking about is that not just this Sukkot, but all the Sukkot's onwards, is that we now have to meditate on how we think about nature. I think many urbanites, many Western urbanites think of nature as this sort of cool thing that you go to, you vacate, you relax, you often plunder, and then you leave it. And what both of you are talking about is a kind of, almost a kind of education, a kind of global education that has to take place where people have to learn how to interact with nature, how to be in it, how to engage with it. So, Julie, I want to start with you here because you've spent a lot of time writing about nature as a spiritual practice. You've even written a book about what you call forest bathing. And I wonder if you could describe for me, first of all, what the term forest bathing means, how we can use nature as a daily spiritual practice. And what I, what I really want to be clear about here is for anybody in a really ordinary way, every day. So forest bathing, the term comes from the Japanese word shinrin-yoku, which literally means bathing in the forest atmosphere. And it was a term that was coined in the 1980s in Japan when they did all of the scientific research to prove the benefits to going out to nature as a way to lower your heart rate, your cortisol levels, increase your sense of contentment. And, you know, there's all this, so much research since then on the benefits of nature for our healing. And what I always like to say is, you know, people think of it as this ancient practice, but the term was coined in the 80s. And yet it is an ancient practice that was preceded the term. And like what I love about the word forest bathing is people go, oh yeah, I do that. I didn't know that was the word for it. So there's something really innate in in humans. And I believe in every culture, every traditional culture has their way of going into nature in in reverence and for healing. And, you know, we used to spend our lives walking on the earth, sleeping on the earth, standing on the earth. And now it's we're so disconnected that we have to go back. 
into the forest to get those benefits, where it used to be just something that we innately had as we existed in our lives. And so you can get those benefits even if you live in an urban place. And actually, when I started my forest bathing practice, I first was living in New York City and then in San Francisco, you know, so you can really do this anywhere. So some things that I always recommend are just having your feet on the earth, earthing. So, you know, whether it's a patch of dirt or a little bit of grass, you can just have your feet on the earth and you actually start to soak up negative ions. I had a teacher and she she had me wear moccasins, which, you know, soft leather sole shoes where you don't, you still get that connection. So it's only when we wear like plastic or shoes like rubber, you know, that we're not getting that connection to nature. And if you think about it, when you walk on the earth in soft-soled shoes or bare feet, there's a way that you move. You can't be a conqueror, right? When you wear, like, boots, you're stomping through the forest, and you kind of, like, little sticks, little twigs, little rocks, like, you can just conquer them. And so it's a different consciousness, actually, to have your bare feet on the earth. And then something I do every morning, I take my dog for a little walk, and I get to a point, I greet the six directions. So east, south, west, north, above and below, and then, you know, into my heart. Then I greet the sun. So I turn towards the east and then hold out my hand. You can do this in any way you'd like. You could just, you know, have a little bow. You can have your hands out. Welcome. And something that I really like about this is it does exist in our tradition, you know, those directions, and exists in every Every tradition has this, this notion of the four directs, six directions, all like, you know, the directions. So you turn each direction, take a moment to pause and you can say anything you like. You could just say, welcome. Thank you to the east. You know, the east is where the sun rises. So you can meditate on that, on spring, on new beginnings. And then to the south, which is midday, summer, then a quarter turn to the, to the west. And the West is actually, you know, it's this fall, it's this harvest season, it's the sunset. West is the direction of Sukkot in the way that I see it. That's the wheel of the year. And then you turn to the North, which is the winter, the midnight, this kind of void, the emptiness. What I sometimes like to do too is as a Greek, take a note of where do I feel in my life? Do I feel, is it the morning? So, okay, it's the morning in the East, but time of year maybe is the West. In my own personal, you know, life, I might be in a different place and starting to kind of understand these, how, where I am. And that's my own compass. So you're talking about nature here as a kind of emotional paradigm. Yeah. Where, what, what I like about what you're describing, both of those things, right? Stepping into the earth and bringing in the directions. That's completely portable. You can be anywhere. You can just step out and, and do that kind of thing. I just wanted to turn to Blue for a second. The portability of spirituality is really inherent in the Hasidic tradition, which is, an, I know, something you thought about, studied, and practiced. And, of course, you find that most prominently in modern Hasidic thought in Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, who's become increasingly popular because of the practice of Hippodidut, which is a kind of aloneness in nature where you talk to God and pray in that sense. Can you talk to us a little about your own personal practice in that regard? Yeah. Elliot, would it be okay if I actually add to what Julia just shared and then come back and answer the question? Julia, I love that you gave the example of earthing, because as I was thinking of like, what are practices that people, what are daily practices that can be done in nature, even living in a city? The first thing that I thought of was also earthing, you know, taking off your shoes. And I, of course, think to the Torah where God says to Moses, like, take off your shoes for the ground that you're standing on is holy. 
And so we have, we actually have, we have that. And they say that, you know, having your feet in contact with the ground for 10 to 15 minutes or as long as you want, it's anti-inflammatory, it's immune boosting. Your feet have so many bones in them and it totally impacts your nervous system. You know, and from there, I think to getting some, getting some sunlight, you know, go outside and actually getting some vitamin D every day for a certain amount of time that a lot of your body's natural pain, natural painkillers are created through sunlight and and just the interaction of the natural world and the nervous system and how good that is for us. And then, of course, you know, you're talking about the directions. And first, I'm thinking of the Zohar. You know, in the Zohar, there is there is reference to the four directions. The four directions have associated angels, you know, seasons, letters of God's name. Like there is a sort of blueprint onto the four directions. And then when we shake the lulav, we're doing that exact practice that you just spoke about. You know, we're we're shaking the palm frond in all of the six directions. And, you know, with each one, we're invited to like bring it back into into the heart. So you've given us sort of daily practices that I think are, they're also Jewish practices. And I love the idea of like reading the directions even beyond Sukkot. But, let, you know, this can be our our sort of starting point our, of bringing that kind of consciousness into our daily life. That's what struck me is transition here, I think this could be an actual pivotal moment in Jewish spirituality, because what we, when we talk about Sukkot, this is something that happens a lot in Jewish education, is that holidays are kind of segmented and in a way ghettoized as, oh, this is what we do one week a year. We do the Passover thing. We eat the matzah, we talk about freedom. We do the Sukkot thing. Oh, we do our little nature thing for a week. What both of you are talking about is that if we're able to interiorize the messages of these holidays. We can now see them as concrete examples of how to live 24-7, 365 days a year, that it isn't just like my one week a year jaunt into the sukkah, but rather sukkah is teaching me, and the sort of practices you both described, is teaching me that these are things I need for my daily mental, spiritual, and emotional health. I need to get in touch with earth. I need to get in touch with the seasons. And so it's in a way very poignant and a little bit sad that we would wait for one week a year to take the palm branch and bring in all the directions when Julian's describing how we can do that every single day in a very simple way. I love I love that. Ruth? And Davka, this year is a great year to um, reorient ourselves because we are in a Shemitah year, which means we are in a year where collectively we are orienting towards the land in a different way. We are letting the land, you know, Shemitah is our for those listening who don't know, Shemitah is our, what Shabbat is for the days. Shemitah is sort of the Shabbat for the land. It's, it's every seven years, the land lies fallow. Whatever grows is up for grabs. It's sort of an equalizer of, in some ways, a redistribution of resources. And, and so we are in a Shemitah year. So what, like, this is the perfect year to say, okay, this year we're going, you know, with climate, with everything that's going on around us, we're going to say this year we are, we are orienting towards nature, towards rest, towards really, yes, bringing these things that have maybe been in our tradition, but not necessarily in our daily consciousness and bring them to the forefront of our, of our lives so that we can, we can be living responsibly and we can be like creating a future that people can continue to live in and thrive in. In a way, humans are at war with their reality. Right. On the one hand, you have this enormous drive to make the world a technological place. 
where you have the eruption of a kind of screen consciousness where everything is done through screens and everything is digitalized and everything is mediated through machine. And yet the earth is kind of screaming back at us now louder than ever. You, you cannot forget about the environment you're in and where you're in. My question to both of you is, I'm going to come back to Rabbi Nachman a little bit, a little bit with you, Bluth, is how do we get these issues, what we're talking about, to be considered not as niche issues, but as core issues, just like the same as the air we breathe and the water we drink. And what I mean, I'm going to be really quite plain about this, is that when people, when certain kinds of people can talk about the environment or climate or spiritual practices, they think, oh, that's for like flaky hippie types and that has nothing to do with me. And what's really sort of setting about that is, no, you're actually, you'd benefit so greatly. All of us would benefit so greatly from just making these little changes that you're talking about. And how do we get people to reorient? Because it's an identity thing, right? I don't identify myself as somebody who cares about the stuff that these women are talking about. So how do we get people to sort of re-identify that this isn't foreign to them, but it's just, it's just being human, especially in our day and age. Let's start with you, Julia. This innate part of us, which is called biophilia, right? As human beings born from the earth, we have an innate love for the earth. And it's something that every child on this earth is born with. And yet it can get forgotten about, right? It's seen as not important as we, as the, you know, kids grow up. So I do believe that everyone is a nature lover. They just might not know it or might have forgotten about it. And that's why a lot of the work that I do is bringing people into these experiences in nature, you know, two hours, two and a half hours, you can do it in an urban place. It doesn't have to be, you know, you have to put on your, you don't have to trek out, you know, to the middle of nowhere. It can be close to home and guiding them through different practices to reconnect to nature. And I've done this in the middle of San Francisco with, you know, venture capitalists and techies. And I'll say that, you know, I'll have them, okay, now go talk to this tree, ask a tree a question. And they, they look at me like I'm crazy at first. And yet they all go and they do it. And then something happens. There's a shift that comes back. Like, wow, this, this really is a real thing. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take much. It's these little seeds that we can plant and then they start to grow inside of people. So yeah, that's how I start to see it. Ruth, in your work, how do you take people who maybe don't self-identify as interested in the environment or climate and show them, especially from a Jewish perspective, and that's why I was talking about Hibotadik before, that this is not some sort of esoteric, flaky, off-the-grid kind of practice, but just a really kind of normal, everyday thing that'll enhance your, your life. It's funny. You asked me that question, and I think I have some resistance to it. I think that I've spent a lot of my life trying to get people to appreciate nature, become nature lovers, be in awe, like feel connected to nature. And I don't care, actually, what people feel connected to. What's happening around us is a very human issue. And it's not about whether you like love nature or you've built yourself into a bubble and you don't like getting dirty or whatever it is. Like, our climate catastrophe is about being human and like life and death and 
It's about justice and it's about people having food or not having food, people having air to breathe or not having air to breathe. It's about it's about the economy. You know, it's a it's an issue of equity, of justice and of our 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 economic systems and our reliance on certain things about to collapse. And what what are we going to do in urban environments where we are completely dependent on things that are being depleted and industries that may collapse soon? And so I, I don't know, I can kind of answer this in different ways. Like one is the value of, I don't know, nature, spirit, attunement, mindfulness, all of these things that I think actually contribute to people having more meaningful, more whole lives. But I think this is really fundamental and basic about humans. And it's, do you, do you want to live? Do you want other people to live? What world do you want for your, I don't know, your kids? And we may be able to try to pretend to close our eyes and say, okay, let's say here in Toronto right now, maybe we're not feeling at this particular moment profound climate disturbance. Whereas so much of the world has been and has been dealing with food insecurity for so long and we've been closing our eyes and pretending that's not a thing because we have the privilege. And now, you know, we look over to California and we look out west and people are suffering from fires and and we're not immune here, you know. And so there's a I don't know, I feel a little fiery about this because I, I don't think it's about like learning to I think the antidote in some ways is learning to connect to nature and reconnect ourselves to Ima Adama, you know, to Mother Nature and to realigning ourselves on a very sort of simple, natural level. But this isn't about changing people's values for value's sake. This is about humans being human and like having a world to live in and caring for each other in that world. You know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that argument. But one of the things that I've learned is that it's very difficult to get people to care about things in the abstract. You sort of have to make them feel connected to something emotionally. But I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's abstract anymore. It's only abstract until it happens to you. And it's humans are humans are constructed such that they don't take seriously what happens to other people until it happens to themselves. So and then so I would say thank God for the people who have the like the mental kite to care about other people and to realize what's happening to other people is happening to us, perhaps indirectly at first and ultimately directly. And thank God there's people leading movements right now. You know, like I, I don't, you know, you, you sure like live under a rock. Go ahead. I would say from a eco psychology perspective, we can pretend that we are separate and that these Things that are happening to the earth don't affect our wellness. Well, here I'm in, you know, Southern Oregon where literally I can't go outside. So it's not even pretending. But if you are in Toronto, you might feel, okay, well, I'm healthy. I'm here, but no one. Explain, explain why you can't go outside. Because we have an AQI of around 200 because of forest fires burning in many different directions. So we have air filters. We have an NKN95 mask to go outside. So it's very real at this moment, you know, as someone who moved here to be in the forest, to be in nature, and now to not be outside is extremely jarring, you know, and I'm um, talking to my husband and we're trying to figure out where do we want to be to raise our family. And you start to see that from a Jewish perspective, it's interesting because we are people of diaspora, right? So I've been on this West Coast for 12 years, but I'm not. From, you know, is this my land? It's like I see these directions. Either you 
move on to greener pastures. And that's kind of what humans have done throughout evolution is, okay, we can't be here, so we're going to flee. Or do you hunker down and say, well, I'm going to be here and do everything I can to protect this place and to deal with it and to shift my lifestyle? Where we are now is there's nowhere to flee because this is happening around the world. And you can look at maps and you can try to figure out by some kind of calculus, like, well, this place will have water and this place will, you know, the wind should blow so the smoke won't get too bad. And we're literally doing that calculus right now as we're trying to figure out where to be. It's crazy making because it's not even a rational thing. So you can't even go back to the time. Well, in the past, because we don't know what the future will hold. And so I think in these moments, first of all, I think this is what brings us into greater spirituality is we have to have something beyond us that is guiding us that we are listening to and in listening to the earth, right? Like this earth is inflamed. We are inflamed. And so I love that Blue, you're saying you're feeling fiery because yeah, like the earth is feeling fiery. And I feel you speaking from the voice of the earth when you say that. And there's one other just this idea that you were speaking to, Elliot, of it's Thich Nhat Hanh, this idea of we have to fall in love with the earth to to care about it. And so I think the work is still to be in love with the earth, even if, you know, it's also, and I think from that place, we can then have that more like warrior, you know, speaking up from the earth of, okay, like this is a intersectional, ecological, economic, social justice issue, but it stems from that connection to nature, I do believe. There's there's a kind of apocalyptic thought there, which is that, and it's actually a very powerful thing to think about with sukkah this year, which is that traditionally Jewish thought the sukkah is a place of refuge. Right. It's, it's a place, it's fragile, but it's a place that you go for refuge and you're under God's protection. That's the major dominant metaphor of the sukkah. But what you're saying, Julia, is so poignant, in other words, because we've reached a point in Earth's evolution where we may have no more refuge. In other words, there's nowhere left to hide, to flee. I think in most people's imagination, Southern Oregon, you know, the forests of Southern Oregon are paradise, right? It's where you go to run away from, like, all of the junk that's pervaded the rest of Western living. And now you're telling me you can't go outside without a kind of COVID mask on just for ordinary breathing. And that's a very, that's a very powerful image. And it's just now that the sukkah is not the last stop that you have to keep on running. So that's a kind of fear trope where you're trying to get people to care about nature out of fear. I think what I was suggesting earlier is that ultimately we only really care about stuff, as you pointed out from Technophilan that you love. And that's why I'm suggesting before that is there some way that we can get people to grow closer to the idea and not feel at odds with or uneasy about the earth that they live in? If I may, I think that turning away right now is not the answer and turning to is. But a turning to doesn't mean we're going to all go and be like hippies at one with the earth. Go ahead. Life may improve greatly if you do that. It has for me. <laughs> but I think turning to means actually working, like both seeing the earth as, yes, it is our refuge and she is crying and we are not working together. She is crying because we have not been at home with her. And so if we turn towards both lovingly, but also with a sense of urgency right now, and with a sense that we're going to use human ingenuity, we're not going to just put a sukkah and say, okay, I did it. I'm like now living in a tent. 
We're going to say, what does the world as a whole need right now in order for us to to be a part of and a contributing part, a co-creator of this beautiful world that God created? And that means getting off fossil fuels. You know, that means, yes, having daily practices where where your nervous system is calmed, your immune system is boosted by the sun, by herbal teas, by plant medicine, by earthing, by forest bathing, by all of those things. It means it means supporting regenerative agriculture and food system support that is going to feed people with greater equity so we don't have parts of the world that are in starvation. You know, it means, yes, being on probably more plant-based diets so that their resources are used efficiently. I think that's what it means to be stewards, to be caring for, to be turning towards like with love, with gratitude, with apology, with all of the, all of the things right now. And, and that's, yeah, it's, it's individual, it's spiritual, it's systemic, it's collective, it's communal, it's economic. It's all of these different levels. I love that so much. And when you say turning towards, I really feel like, yeah, when you turn towards earth, a lot of the reason why people don't want to is there is that pain that you start to feel. And yet, as uh, Joanna Macy says, like business as usual depends on that stiff upper lip. So but that she means like not crying by just keep on going. And so when you when you turn to the earth and you feel that pain, that's very Sukkot actually, right? It's like you have to pray for the rain. You have to actually from your deepest like place in your heart, pray for that rain, pray for that redemption. And it you have to like be really feeling it to pray for that. You can't be going through the motions. And so I think that is really pertinent to to this time. So pray for rain is one example of a spiritual practice that's completely integrated into the idea of nature as a part of Jewish liturgy. I, in closing our conversation, I wonder if each of you could talk about specifically spiritual practices that you've cultivated in nature and in relationship to nature. We'll start with you, Bluth. I have a few different spiritual practices of nature, and some of them are more explicitly spiritual practices, and some of them are more lifestyle habits that I either do or try to do. Both, to me, are spiritual practices. So I think the most basic one is, you know, our food, is where is our food coming from? And I think that is a spiritual practice of being knowing who your farmers are, ordering from a CSA, knowing that your food is grown in a way that isn't polluting, but is that is in healthy cycles with with the earth and is healthily feeding our bodies. And of course, like coming with, you know, blessing and gratitude to the food that we eat. I have in the past had a practice of heat buttadut and heat buttadut being a breslov sort of Rebbe Nachman based breslov practice, Hasidic practice of going into nature and pouring out one's heart. So just going outside, going to a tree in a park or going into a forest or to the sea and having a stream of consciousness flow from your heart, whatever it is that you're yearning for, that you're pained about getting really personal and just speaking out loud, speaking to the universe, speaking to God. Even if you don't know what to say, just saying like, I don't know what to say, but just talking and talking and letting that sort of catharsis from the heart and specifically doing that in nature. You know, <laughs> Rev Labish Hunter used to, or I'm sure he still has a strong Hibodadu practice, but he was living in Montreal. And so sometimes his Hibodadu would be on the mountain in the forest. Um, and in the winter, his Hibodadu would be in the 
underground Montreal has like a deep winter underground city of like malls and subways. And he would find an empty stairwell and he would go and just be like pouring out his heart. So, you know, wherever you find the solitude, really. But there is something profound that that practice is inherently nature based. So you're not in you're not praying from the Siddur, from the words of the prayer book in the synagogue, in the walls of the congregation. But you're actually letting your heart just sort of spontaneously erupt. And and Dafka, and specifically that, is held by the earth around you. On that note, I learned a really beautiful practice from a coach and shamaness from Colombia recently. And she says when you're very triggered, when you're emotionally activated, to go for a walk and collect a bunch of sticks and stones that you find on your walk. Get to a tree, get to a place in nature where you lay these things down. She says, do a bunch of exercise, exhaust your body so you can sort of give your mind some some relief. And then what you do is each of these stones, sticks, leaves, flowers that you find, you you create a mandala. You you make like a beautiful sort of circular art piece. And with each one that you lay down, you offer an offering of gratitude with the emotion you're feeling. So, for example, I'm feeling furious at my family, you know, whatever it is. And I'm grateful because it's helping me maybe get some more space or have some more boundaries, or I'm feeling so sad, but it's helping me move through things or whatever it is. You place a stone and with gratitude to the earth, because what you say to the earth is, for me, this is an, a charged emotion, but for the earth, this is energy. This is like energy that's been in my body. And I'm now going to give the energy to the earth for the earth to kind of munch up and recycle because there's no value judgment on energy. So that's a mandala practice. There's the hipata dut, there's the food and the blessing. And of course, just prayer and meditation. You know, for me, my most connected prayer and meditation moments are by lakes or by the ocean or by the vastness. So I can be in, you know, Heschel. I can bring in the sort of the awe of Heschel and the I thou of Goober in the beauty, the peace and the chaos of the, of the world around me. Yeah, that was beautiful. It's interesting because my, my spirituality of nature started with me going to nature for solace in a really desperate time and crying to the trees. And, and I didn't know what I was doing. Right. And eventually I heard of forest bathing and eventually I started a forest bathing club and got a book deal. And so I started doing more research and I went to Japan and I learned from Shigendo Buddhist monks certain ways of the greeting the sun and being with the directions and getting to certain spots on a walk and stopping to pray for a stone and things like that. And I spent time with Mayan elders in Guatemala and the shamanic Reiki teacher and all of these different traditions outside of my own. And it was when, you know, one teacher said, okay, call in your ancestors. And so I'm doing, okay, I'm doing this thing. I'm calling in my ancestors. I don't know. And then all of a sudden this, my ancestry came calling really loud. I hosted a Shabbat at my house and I met the musical director of Wilderness Torah at the time. And he said, come to Wilderness Torah. So I was like, oh, all of a sudden I got to this place for the High Holy Days. And there's all of these Jews who are praying, you know, are praying to nature. And, and I told my story of like, you know, I just, did all these other things. And then I found Judaism. And then they said, yeah, yeah, you know, we've all done that too. <laughs> like, welcome, welcome back. But so that is to say that, first of all, like I was doing heat bododut without knowing it. And there's something to me that I, I love, like in these conversations, learning from both of your perspective, the Jewish perspective, because I feel like I learned the other perspective. And now I'm like, where is this in my tradition? And so it's this discovery. But I also 
what I do have is that I know that it's, I didn't have to learn it from a book, right? It's just from my soul, from that direct connection. And I know that we all have that ability. I love to go into the creek by my house and to dunk. And I feel every time like I'm coming out refreshed and I'm like, oh, that's a mikvah. There's so much in, you know, we can use nature, like water is a cleansing element. And then, oh, that's in our tradition too. Fire is for when you want to burn things up. You can have a little fire and you can put pieces of paper or little offerings like cedar incense into the fire and releasing. And it's kind of like a tashlit. You know, there's so many things that are in our tradition that are also just in these like direct nature prayer practices. And so I have many, many, but my most basic that brings me back into connection anytime where I feel lost is to give an offering. And that offering can be anything from a flower to some seeds to some kernels of corn. I'm actually this year in my garden growing native tobacco to then be able to give some tobacco as offerings. It's a Native American practice, but it's like give something, you know, even when you're feeling like, oh, the world owes me everything and you give something, it just shifts your whole being immediately. Julia, I, I love I love what you're offering <laughs> to us. And you're you're reminding me that, right, like spiritual practice of nature. It's like if you're a Jew, it's actually well, if you're I think most wisdom traditions have this, but particularly because we have a Jewish audience here, Judaism is actually very nature based and earth based. You know, we pray according to the cycles of the day, our mikvahs, our cleansing waters, our elemental, our holidays are pretty much all agricultural holidays. And, you know, you're talking about offerings and a lot of those have to do with sort of recalling our temple times, which is around sacrifice and offering. So yeah, yes, (laughs) I love the, I love the weaving of the sort of new age reclaiming practice and rooting in, you know, the four directions of the Zohar, the holiday calendar that we have, the prayer cycle that we have, the food blessings that we have, and all of that. And then Rosh Kodesh, right? Like, I had a new moon circle. And then I realized that, oh, this is actually deep in my tradition, you know, and it's been this beautiful discovery of all these things that I thought I was borrowing to then feel like, oh, no, this is very true to me. And yeah, that Judaism, it's all there. We've inherited this this uh, tradition that brings us. We don't need to reinvent the connection. It actually invites us in. And Sukkot, I think, is right again a perfect time to recommit to to being guided by these principles and practices. Many people view Judaism as a religion of the indoors, with images of people praying in enclosed sanctuaries and pouring over texts in classrooms and study halls. But Judaism has a long and rich tradition of engagement with the natural world and reminds us of our ever-present responsibility to protect the earth. God instructs Adam, the first human, in the Garden of Eden, to work the earth and to watch over it. La'avdo l'shamro in Hebrew. And the question of not only the Jewish but the human future on earth rests on how good a job we will do in upholding the sacred trust that was given to the very first human being. I'm Elaine Malamud. Stay safe and take good care not only of yourselves, but of the planet that we all share. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. 
You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.